talk about the odd clauses. Like there are some clauses in the constitution that nobody knows about. Nobody talks about. It's fascinating too how some of these things come about out of these side discussions or these weird compromises or one person, this is their bailiwick and it got in there because nobody thought to question it. Right. Um, And the bajillion committees that existed over the course of creating this constitution. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Hey y'all, Cannon here to interrupt. Rebecca and Becca talked about the constitution for a solid hour and a half. And that was after editing the shout out to all the younger sisters who don't listen. But it's such good and necessary information that we are releasing this in two episodes. Today's mini episode introduces you to the why we have this episode. And then on Thursday, Constitution Day, we'll have a full episode all about this historic document. Okay, back to the Rebecca's. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And we're the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about something that I really love uh, a lot, and that's the United States Constitution. And that might be weird to say that I love the Constitution, but I really do. Uh, I am, in my core and in my heart of hearts, a person who really loves the promise of America and the foundation of America and the the hope and ambition of what this country could be uh, and can be and is at, at its best. And I think the Constitution is just amazing and fascinating. Um, and as much as I, I am the first to criticize and I think uh, – hold the feet to the fire sometimes. I really love this document. And so I'm excited for us to dig in on it. What are your, what's your gut feeling about the constitution, Rebecca? I have so many mixed feelings about the constitution, to be honest. Um, I love the idea of it. Like what it was trying to do, I think is a really noble idea. I think the execution fails in ways that we don't talk enough about. And I also think that it needs to be contextualized. Like anything else, it is not a document that is exists in a vacuum. There's very real forces that acted upon the Constitution that are of its moment. You know, we're going to talk about Shays' Rebellion and a lot of the Constitution, I feel like you can't talk about the Constitution without talking about the fact that they're trying to prevent a counter-revolution. So there's so, I, I have mixed feelings. I think yeah. it needs changes, but I think it's, I love the promise of it. What I, I'm looking forward to talking about today too is like anything, this is the work, the product of the work of individual people, all of whom had their own agendas, their own ideas, their own biases and prejudice. Uh, and it's, it's sort of this patchwork quilt that sort of comes out of this with like a little bit of everything. And I, I think to understand the constitution, you have to understand the people who are there in the room creating it. And you have to understand, like you said, the context of what was going on. So uh, that'll be what we'll be digging into today. I should say just as a little caveat, neither of us are lawyers or constitutional scholars as it were. Um, We are historians and tour guides. And so we will be giving lots of good narrative context, but please do not use this as a guide to uh, circumvent the law. We do not. Yeah, no. Uh, we are not providing really, legal advice. We are not providing legal advice here. <laughs> Check with that's, the lawyer. <laughs> that's my little boilerplate. Um, of course, we're talking about Constitution, uh, the Constitution for this episode at this time, because this will be released right around Constitution Day. Do you know what day Constitution Day is? Uh, it's September 17th. Uh, yes, September 17th is when the Constitution is signed, uh, September 17th, 1787. Uh, 
And, you know, that's the day that's signed. But it's not until 1952 that we sort of have this weird um, hybrid day that comes out of the Constitution. Uh, Congress passes a law and they call it, I am an American day. Um, and I am an American day had been in May previously uh, since 1940 and they move it to September 17th and they call it citizenship day. So this idea is we're gonna celebrate new citizens and citizenship and pride of being a citizen uh, on the same day that we celebrate the signing of the Constitution. This is 1952, so that should make some sense in the context of what's going on there, Rebecca. I have so many sadnesses about this. Like, so we're going to have I am a citizen day while like we're actively trying to prevent citizens from exercising their right to vote. But okay. Um, no, I would guess the context of this would be the Cold War because we want to be proud to be an American because we're not communists. Exactly. So, um, along with sort of this post-World War II mentality, and as we head into the Cold War, this idea of really celebrating citizenship, understanding citizenship, and going back to understanding the Constitution. And the idea with this sort of proclamation from Congress is that they want to encourage all people at all levels and in all parts of the government, so local, state, federal, to make plans for observing this day for the complete instruction of citizens in their responsibilities and opportunities as citizens of the United States, which sounds really good, but also, like you said, at a time where we're still very much preventing a lot of people from exercising those full rights of citizenship. Uh, in 2004, Congress changes the name again and kind of makes it Constitution Day and Citizenship Day. And actually in that law in 2004, uh, and this continues on today, actually sets aside federal funds uh, for educational uh, institutions, civic organizations to access government money to promote constitution. So I am part of a lineage heritage organization that celebrates Constitution Day and usually Constitution Week. Uh, and a big part of what we try to do is just to get copies of the constitution out into the hands of people, uh, make sure that they know that the constitution is there for them and, and give them access to it. Yes. It amazes me all the time that people have not read the Constitution. It's not especially long. Like it's, you know, like if you see it in the archives, it's basically like four large sheets of paper. It's a little bit tricky with the language, but not terribly. And it's the owner's manual. Like it's our founding document. How do we, these are the rules of the road, so to speak, and how it's so important that people understand what it is and what it spells out. I think that that's, you know, it's, this is establishes our government, establishes the powers of the president and the powers of the judiciary and what Congress can and cannot do. And it also talks about like, there's a clause in there about weights and measures. Like if you've ever wondered why the U S is on the Imperial system versus the metric system, which the rest of the world is on, you can blame our constitution. It is actually enshrined in our constitution that we're on the imperial system. So that's why we're always a little bit off from everybody else. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's why I think. It's I agree with you. certainly hundred percent that I hope if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read the constitution or you haven't in a long time, or if you've only looked at some parts of it, take a look. It's less than 5,000 words, which in the grand scheme of things, it's not very long, uh, really, uh, especially for an important document establishing our government and setting a, the legal framework of our land. And it, it was written purposefully to be readable and accessible. 
yes, the language from 1787 can, can be different uh, than, than what our vernacular in 2020 is, but, and we'll talk about this a little later, the idea was not to make it super complex, not to wrap it up in legalese. It was to make it something that the average citizen could comprehend. Uh, and I think it's, it's important to recognize what the Constitution does and what it doesn't do, mm -hmm. uh, which is important. And it is also the road to getting to the Constitution was not a smooth one. It was not an easy path. Um, and I think understanding how we get to it helps us understand where the Constitution goes um, in the future and, and how it is best utilized and what it can do for us uh, moving forward. And I think a lot of people think the Constitution is great without understanding it or taking a deep look at it. And I think it's okay to think it's great, but you have to be able to tell me why. Right, exactly. Like, I feel like we're taught in school, the Constitution is really awesome. And then like, we're not provided any context or reason why, like, it is and, great. And this might just be my experience. I feel like there was so much more attention paid when I was a student to the Declaration of Independence than to the Constitution, which yeah. the Declaration has kind of a great story, right? You know, yeah. we're fighting and we're the rebels and we're the upstarts and it, it's a fun document. And you've got this tall redheaded figure that you can sort of be like, this dude wrote it. Um, and then the Constitution is a lot trickier to talk about, but it's to me so much more significant and so much more beautiful and so much more complex yeah. and so much more interesting. And I think the people involved are so much more interesting. So um, that's, that's how I feel. And I also feel like the Declaration of Independence is like a discrete event. Like it happened and it's over. Like we have, you know, we sent this, well, we actually didn't send the letter to George III, but that's neither here nor there. The constitution is still a thing. Like it still governs us. It's still something we struggle with and wrestle with and try to figure out if it is as relevant today as it was in 1787 and why. So I feel like that's part of the narrative of why the constitution doesn't get as much play because it still affects us and it's going to call into a question like declaration of independence talks about you know the usurpations of a, a overweening uh, tyrannical king that's something we haven't worried about for a long time whereas the constitution you start talking about it and all of a sudden you're talking about like political issues that are affecting us right now and that can make people a little hinky you know They're, they don't want to get into the political stuff which is fair you know we're going to get into the political stuff. We are, no, yeah. if, if, <laughs> if you learn anything from this podcast or any of our tours is that almost anything we debate today in the 21st century was debated in the 18th century. Many of the core conflicts that we have today as citizens were conflicts that they were debating in, the, in 1776 or in 1787. And so um, that, is, that is not new. And you have to be comfortable with having those debates, I think. That's part of citizenship for me. The other thing that I say, people always, you'll find this on every website everywhere that, oh, what would the founders have said about name your hot button 20th century issues? Guns, uh, healthcare, the size of the large military, etc. Whatever your issue is, what would the founders have said about it? The whole point of the constitution is that the founders knew there would be issues they could not plan for because they were smart guys. They knew there were things coming that they wouldn't be able to foresee. And they left a way for us to adapt. That's the, I think the genius of the constitution is that we can adapt it to our changing circumstances. Yes. Isn't that great? What's your favorite amendment? My favorite amendment. Oh my gosh. Ah, 
Uh, you know what? I'm going to say, I'll say the First Amendment. Like it. I really will. Uh, and I always, you know, I try to em emphasize with students when they come to D.C. that within that First Amendment, you have five really significant rights enshrined. And we tend to focus on religion, press, and freedom, all of which are very important. But the right to assemble mm -hmm. and the right to petition the government are so key yeah. uh, and so significant. Um, so I love the First Amendment. Okay, fair enough. Which I believe means I can say whatever I want without consequence. Correct? Yes, Am I correct? that is exactly what that means. Yes. You can cut that, Candon. No, I'm just I also just want to mention, not in this episode, but to everyone listening, Madison did not sign the Declaration of Independence. I just want to make that clear, despite what some idiots might say. Yeah, let's, let's do a little Founding Father rundown real fast. George Washington, James Madison did not sign the Declaration of Independence. They didn't. Madison was too young and George Washington was fighting a war. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both signed the Declaration of Independence, but did not sign the Constitution because they were in France being awesome. They were both abroad. Drinking wine. <laughs> so let's talk about how we get to the Constitution, though, because I think there's a little period of history that we all sort of gloss over, and that's 1776 to 1787. Like, the Declaration of Independence is written. Mm -hmm. And we're fighting the American Revolution, but the revolution doesn't end in 1776. No. Um, the fighting goes on until 1783. And I think a lot of people forget how long the revolution is. A lot of people forget the ups and downs of the revolution, right? Uh, this idea of, are we going to win? How's this going to work? Is this going to be a full and complete victory? Will we ultimately reach a compromise? And then even when we get to 1783 and we win and we have become our our this new country, there's this question of, okay, what does that mean? And there had been sort of this stopgap measure, as I would describe it, of the Articles of Confederation. Oh, the Articles of Confederation. So the Articles of Confederation, right, there's 13 states now, colonies then states. And these articles were drafted really as a stopgap, just to sort of like, okay, we need to put something on paper so that we have some rules. And they were very bad rules. The basic premise of the Articles of Confederation is that every state has a veto. So if one of the 13 states doesn't like literally anything, they can veto it. So imagine you're with a group of friends and you're trying to decide what movie that you want to see. This is a real world example. Any one of your friends has veto power over the movie. So you know what ends up happening? You end up standing in the movie theater back when we could go to movie theaters and arguing with each other about which movie you're going to see. That's kind of what happens with the Articles of Confederation. Any budgetary, any military action, anything can be vetoed by any one of the 13 states. And then like now, you've got a lot of difference between New Hampshire and Massachusetts and Georgia and South Carolina. Like there's a lot of real estate in there and a lot of different priorities. I don't know who thought this was a good idea because it clearly like, it's just clearly not great. It is, and it, it is useful, I think, for the, the period 1771, yes. 1777 to kind of 1781 of like, we're fighting this war and we need some sort of framework for doing that. We need to say we're basically all fighting this war together. And a lot of what the Articles of Confederation does is just legalizes what the Continental Congress had been doing, which was making decisions about the war. So it works with that context. But once the war is winding down, 
and now it's about governance and moving forward. Like you said, it's just not practical. It's not feasible. And it's really this um, kind of confederation of individual states. We are not a country, not a un unified country, and we have no framework for that. And the biggest issue I think that the nation, the young nation faces under the Articles of Confederation is an issue we still struggle with today, which is money and spending. Money, 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 money. Okay, sorry, I won't I don't say think that. we have the rights to that. No, I don't, we don't. Money. <laughs> uh, it's money, and after the war, there is a massive amount of war debt. Yeah. I don't always think people understand when the American Revolution ends, we owe so much money. We owe money abroad. We owe money here to the men who fought this war. We owe money to people that had essentially bought uh, 18th century version of war bonds that had invested. Um, and there's rapid inflation. There's all of this issue with money. And, you know, it's very hard to collect money when a state can veto. One state can veto the collection of funds. Oh, so they didn't have Venmo back then, so it was really <laughs> difficult to like actually centralize the money. The a lot of decentralized states. You've got a bunch of competing state governments that are sort of not really willing to work with a federal government. You've got a lot of competing states that are really nervous about surrendering their authority to a powerful state government, and a lot of governors who, frankly, want to do their own thing. You know who cares what these people next door are doing? We want to do our own thing in Massachusetts or, you know, New Jersey or whatever it is. So we have, we have issues as yeah. we approach 1787. Uh, and one of the biggest ones is in Massachusetts. You had mentioned Shays Rebellion. Uh, I think we need to dig into that a little bit. Yes. Um, so Shays Rebellion, Daniel Shays is a farmer. Uh, he fought in the American Revolution. He is a veteran. And um, he was he, not paid, by the way. He had not been paid for his service in the American Revolution. And that was, was not, not uncommon. Yeah, not a unique problem. No, there's a lot of veterans who have not been paid by their government for services rendered. And um, he obviously wants to get paid. And he also is going to protest against the collection of taxes. Like, and you can kind of see his point. They're collecting tag, the government's collecting taxes from me, but yet they can't pay me for helping to make them a government. Like, I would be a little annoyed with that too, I feel like. It's not an uncommon problem. And so in Western Massachusetts, you've got a really toxic mix of farmers who are aggrieved at the government and um, the, they're going to have this revolution. It's a small rebellion, it must be said, but the federal government, Congress, can't afford to finance federal troops to quell this rebellion. So the state troops, Massachusetts sends basically its National Guard to put down this Chase Rebellion. And that's not really great either because if you're going to have a rebellion internally, the federal government really needs to take care of that if you're going to have a, a, any sort of federal government. So you have this problem and it stretches over several months. This is not just a one time, let's go protest and it gets out of hand. 
these are small-time farmers who are struggling economically, who are feeling the pressure of this inflation, the value of their properties are decreasing, not increasing. Many of them fought in the revolution, hadn't been paid, and now they're being pressured to pay taxes. Uh, they're very unhappy. And it, it's not just, I'm unhappy on this day. I am unhappy and I'm going to continue to stage these protests and rebellions over a series of months. And it, it's a problem. Uh, at least some people recognize it's a problem. I love that Thomas Jefferson at this point is in France. Um, and he's just like, oh, you know, rebellions happen, man. Let it, let it go. It's the, the tree of liberty must be refreshed with blood. I'm paraphrasing Jefferson yes, there. This is where you get that quote from Jefferson that is on every t-shirt everywhere. And it's one of the most misquoted things. It frustrates me to this day. Like he was being ironic. Like, he was kind of joking around to a friend, like, oh, you know, this is kind of funny. Jefferson is a deeply complex man with a very odd sense of humor. And he was, that quote is definitely not to be taken literally. He was in France. Jefferson does not sign the Constitution. He does not participate in this process except from afar. He's busy doing French things and drinking a lot of French wine. A lot. A lot of French wine. And he's kind of not sure exactly what's going on because they didn't have 24-hour cable news back then. He's getting like second, third, and fourth-hand reports and is kind of making a sort of joke about what's happening. So he's not really concerned. George Washington, however, is. George Washington is in Virginia at this point, but that's at least a little closer than France. And he says, you know, we need a government to secure our liberty. Like, our property, our lives, like this is something we're going to need to put into place in order to have this experiment that we've got going on to have it really work. And, you know, Washington is no monarchist. He's not interested in seeing this new country just become the British Empire recreated. But this loose confederation of groups that are kind of near each other is not working. And Washington recognizes very quickly that Shays' Rebellion could happen over and over and over over any number of issues and we could just devolve mm -hmm. very very quickly and so washington who is you know the person that many people are turning to during this time in in a careful way is saying we need to think about a government and we need to think about you know and he's not saying what kind of government he doesn't put forward nope. a plan but he is using his influence to say we have got to do something. Now, people debate today how much Shays' Rebellion really influenced the creation of the Constitution, but I, I think that it's impossible to, to decouple these two events. I think it's Were there people arguing, independent of Shays' Rebellion, that we needed um, to have a more secure form of government? Sure. But Shays' Rebellion is what really pushes, I think, a lot of the most influential people to get on the ball and get this going. I think Shays' Rebellion is really the pivotal event in ensuring that we got a constitution on a couple of levels. Number one, um, it tells the, the founders they're worried, start to be worried about a counter-revolution. Like you have all these disaffected people. We, in order to prevent this experiment from going, this American experiment from going awry, we need to put something in place so that doesn't happen. You also have Shays was sort of lower middle class and you have the constitution is drafted by a bunch of pompous white farmers who are all relatively wealthy. And they're saying, wait a second, we got to put something in place here to enshrine our rights because otherwise, you know, the mass of people will get ideas here. And so this is the backdrop of the constitution. You want to prevent this counter-revolution, which is fair, like 
you know, we can't continually have revolutions. And this is sort of the moment, there's a lot of scholars, historians and scholars who have said, this is the moment where the American experiment kind of takes a right turn. We have this very radical act of freeing ourselves from the British, and there's a lot of radical ideas, but Shays' Rebellion happens and it sort of wakes up everybody, uh, sort of the, the ruling class and the gentry class and the, um, that say, wait a minute, maybe we don't want to get too radical here. We need to slow this down. And so they kind of take a deep breath and decide that we need to put some sort of framework into place so that their privileges are enshrined and that we don't have this counter-revolution happening all over the place. Yeah, to sort of stabilize this situation. Um, So we get a call for a convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Today we call it the Constitutional Convention. That's not what they called it because they didn't know that they were going to write a constitution per se. Um, They called it the Philadelphia Convention, the Federal Convention, or the Grand Convention, which I love, the Grand Convention. Um, So they decide to have this convention. The the cover story. Thanks for tuning in to Tour Guide Tell All. Becca and Rebecca will be back on Thursday in our next episode to finish out our discussion on the Constitution. Don't forget, if you just can't wait to hear it, patrons get early access to all our episodes. You can sign up using the link in the show notes or send us a one-time donation to our Venmo at TourGuideTellAll. As always, thank you to our patrons, including my little sister who does listen to our episodes. The support of our patrons is what allows us to keep doing this. You can also share this episode on social media. We're at TourGuideTellAll on Instagram and Facebook and TourGuideTell on Twitter. Another way to support us is to get some TourGuideTellAll merchandise from our store. T-shirts, stickers, mugs, and more. TourGuideTellAll is researched, written, edited, mixed, and everything by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Candon Arseniega, and Dan King. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Listen to new episodes every Thursday and many episodes on select Mondays. Until next time.